Hi, and welcome to another episode of The Law Down. My name is Warnie Sander. I am a senior associate at CM Murray. Today, I have with me a few of my colleagues to talk to you about some really interesting stories in the news recently. So today I've got Beth Hale, Emma Bartlett, and Winnie Safro Gaiafi. And today we've got three really interesting stories that have come out in the last month to talk to you um, about. The first is in relation to Kurt Zuma, who's a West Ham footballer, who had a video emerge of him kicking a cat. And we want to talk about the implications of misconduct outside of the workplace and some other issues. There's also a second story in relation to a call to ban culturally insensitive barrister wigs. Yes, those sort of white wigs that you see barristers wear in all of these um, shows on TV. And thirdly, about harassment in the metaverse. Yes, it's gone online too. Um, And there's some really interesting implications for uh, employment law there as well. So without further ado, we're going to set off with the first story about uh, Kurt Zuma. So last month, there was a video that emerged of him. He's a premiership footballer and he plays for West Ham United. And it showed him kicking his pet cat across the floor. And it obviously drew wide censure um, and criticism. And it was reported that he was fined uh, £250,000 by West Ham United and was also required to go through an animal welfare education programme. However, he was also still selected for the team that beat Watford later on that day. Although he'd apologised and the cats were seized by the RSPCA, as we understand, um, and there was an ongoing investigation And he lost sponsorship deals. Of course, there was still some outrage about the fact that he was allowed to play um, and was selected by the manager, David Moyes, both, I think, on that day and also the, the, the next match as well. So for us, this has raised some really interesting questions about how potential misconduct outside of the workplace can impact on um, workplace discipline. For example, can you discipline for it? Um, and if so, what sort of conduct would you be able to discipline for? Um, but also questions around whether or not you can suspend um, somebody during an investigation. So in this case, Kurt Zuma was not suspended. He was allowed to play. Um, and there are various considerations within the employment context <clears throat> as to whether or not you suspend somebody. Um, but also, I think a third point that we might want to touch on is around mental health. Um, as there had been some uh, issues raised as to the impact on him um, and his mental health as it all kind of blew up in the news. So first of all, Beth, I think we can um, see some parallels here with issues that come up for us uh, where we have employees who are accused of misconduct outside of the workplace and questions around whether or not you can discipline someone for that conduct. I think the first point to make really is that case law has held that you can discipline for conduct outside the workplace but as with a lot of things it does depend on the circumstances and what the conduct is um, but when funny, that, that it depends on the circumstances the classic lawyer's answer yeah it? exactly very classic but also a, a lot of the time the the conduct outside of the workplace usually involves um something that touches on the employer's business and usually the employer will relate it to something like their their reputation so um, I think quite recently you know things that people do on social media posts that they they post on Facebook or on on Twitter 
um, but also other sorts of, of conduct um, that might impinge on your workplace, for example, dishonesty or sexual misconduct or any sort of serious criminal offence um, that can affect your actual ability to sort of do your day-to-day -day work or the employer's trust in the employee. So there are sort of a range of conduct that can affect the workplace and can be disciplined. So Beth, well, in this case, obviously we've had, it's a situation involving a, a video and there was sort of evidence of, of what had happened. But if this had happened within a sort of ordinary workplace, is this the sort of conduct that um, you think an employer could discipline for? Yeah, I mean, I think there are two things for an employer to consider in these kinds of circumstances. One, does the conduct or alleged conduct potentially impact on the individual's ability to do their job or the, the way in which they do their job? And then secondly, there's the sort of, are they bringing the uh, employer or indeed the sort of profession in which they work into disrepute? And that, that can also, you'd ordinarily find a sort of provision in a disciplinary policy or a handbook, which talks about that as a you know, bringing bringing them into disrepute as a potential grounds for disciplinary action. So I think those are the two the sort of two key things for for employers to consider. And I think you know again to come back to the sort of classic lawyer answer, it depends a little bit on what the it depends a lot on what the um what the, what the employer is. I think in this case, very high profile football team, very high profile individual. Although as an Arsenal fan, I'd like to think West Ham aren't that high profile, but you know, <laughs> still a Premiership team. <laughs> Premiership team. To be balanced on this podcast. <laughs> And, you know, there is a strong argument that he ought to be setting an example that, you know, that, that they are that footballers at this level are role models. Mm. Um, and so I think there is a real, you know, a real concern about the sort of bringing West Ham into disrepute and West Ham obviously lost sponsorship deals as a result of it. So I think, you know, in, in a similar circumstance, but as you say, in a sort of more ordinary workplace, yes, I think there is there would be grounds for taking disciplinary action, but mm. not without an investigation to determine what actually happened and what the facts were, whether there are any mitigating circumstances, all those kinds of things. An employer would have to sort of follow normal processes for internal procedures for doing that. But I think um, it's very clear that particularly in the age of social media and sort of that slight blurring of work and personal life, mm. that the employees can be disciplined for, for conduct outside the workplace. Um, I think employers have to be a bit careful about that and how they manage it and, and really apply their minds to why they're taking the action they're taking, because there will be things which just are, are irrelevant to the individual's ability to do their work and don't really have a impact on the reputation. So there was a, there was a case of a, um, employees putting up a YouTube video where they were behaving in an inappropriate way and the employer said that it brought their company into disrepute turned out the YouTube video had had four views and so there was no evidence for disrepute and so it's, I have to it's, say that's very low even <laughs> in today's, in today's yeah. culture so, yeah so it was you know so the uh, you, you have to be pretty careful and make sure that you've sort of worked out what you're actually disciplining for and why and why it has an impact yeah and I think uh, there is often a sort of knee-jerk reaction sometimes to conduct that might be reprehensible just morally or generally um, but that may not um, impact on the workplace so there was also a case uh, in relation to an employee who was a member of um, the Labour Party Mar Marxists and I think there was a counter demonstration that they attended where they expressed some controversial views in relation to the Zionist movement and things like that and the employer in that case I think it was a local council tried 
to well did dismiss um, and the the dismissal was challenged as unfair because the conduct it, it was said just didn't impact on the workplace it was sort of private political personal views being expressed outside of work which i think just happened to be captured on camera by i think it was the bbc um and there and then it went it, it went viral as these things sometimes do but the actual conduct itself wasn't conduct that the tribunals thought uh, was conduct that the employer could actually discipline for. So um, I think you're right. Employers do need to be careful and consider carefully um, why they are um, trying to discipline. Um, I think that leads us on actually to talk about suspension, because in this uh, Zuma case as well, as I said, he, he wasn't suspended. And interestingly enough, his brother, who was reported to be the person that filmed the incident and plays for Dagenham and Redbridge. He was suspended by his club um, for his potential involvement whilst they were investigating it. And it's quite interesting because um, David Moyes, who's the manager of West Ham, made this comment. He said he understands how people feel, but he also thought that the right thing to do was to put Zuma to work and let the investigation take care of what was coming. And I actually thought, although he's not an employment lawyer, he kind of sort of <laughs> summed up um, the approach to suspension or the appropriate approach to suspension so ordinarily um you know suspension is an interim action uh, that employers can impose pending an investigation and in the minds of a lot of, of lay people it's seen as a, as a sanction but actually it, it's not supposed to be a punishment it's supposed to be an interim measure to allow the employer to undertake the investigation or to protect against certain potential risks and there's a big risk for employers in an ordinary workplace situation that they do have a knee-jerk reaction to allegations of misconduct and they suspend without sort of thinking about the reason why they're suspending because doing that could potentially be a breach of, of mutual trust and confidence between uh, the employer and the employee um, yeah. and it potentially could repudiate the contract and, and lead to the employee resigning and claiming constructive dismissal. Um, so it's just another area I think you know when you sort of hear these kind of stories and I think people assume straight away that certain action can be taken by employers but you've kind of got to think a little bit more carefully about it. What are your sort of views around suspension and more generally um, how it's approached in in um, employment situations? Yeah I mean I think you're absolutely right that it's to be treated again with a bit of caution by employers. First of all you need to have some kind of contractual right or a right in your policy ideally in the actual contract to suspend in order to apply a suspension. Um, you need to make clear that it's not a sanction that it is an interim measure but also absolutely right it shouldn't be used as a knee-jerk. You need to think about as an employer why you're why you might suspend. Is there a risk to the business? Is there a risk to you know, internal relationships in, in the workplaces, there are risks to systems and, and procedures. Um, or the um, evidence or... Yeah, and, and how long is the suspension going to be for? Mm -hmm. um, you know, what you, what you don't want is, you know, suspend someone and then, you know, six months later, you're still running the investigation. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think my personal view is actually that the West Ham situation was a bit different um, and that it would have been a pretty straightforward thing for West Ham to do um, I mean I've not seen the contracts but um, to not select him for a game mm. um, and I think it would have saved West Ham a, a lot of, of grief to have done that and mm. made a real public statement that this kind of behaviour is not acceptable mm. even though it's not to do with football but just you know and that, uh, but I think that for most employers um, that that sort of very public statement is not 
appropriate and not and not sort of within the sort of band of what they the sort of reasonable responses to to a, an allegation of misconduct yeah um, I think my answer is a bit different yeah and I, I can see that as you say with the high profile nature of this case you you may want to sort of I was gonna say virtual signal but that's that's <laughs> sounded <laughs> fairly negative but but signal the employer's views as to the conduct but I think as you say I think ordinary employers do need to be careful about doing that as well because they still need to have reasonable and proper cause to suspend and they need to consider all of the factors you know both for suspension and against suspension and, and one of the sort of leading cases in this area where a, a suspension was imposed because the allegations involve children I believe but it was sort of found that the the suspension was inappropriate in that case um I think it was in that case as well where the court sort of emphasized the psychological damage um, that could be caused to the person who's suspended and that all needs to be born in in the whole mix of considering whether or not to suspend as well as you know acting consistently as well with other previous decisions and considering if there's some less harsh action that could be taken, moving somebody to a different team in an ordinary situation or uh, requiring them to work at home or something that still deals with the, the risk that the employer is trying to address um, that doesn't amount to suspension. But as I say, I completely hear what you say in, in the in the West Ham context. Um, yeah, most most employers won't be dealing with a kind of you know this is a, a role model very much in the public eye, and we want to make a very public statement about the. <laughs> so I think the position for most employers is very different. Yeah. Although one thing that uh, some employers might be dealing with is where the individual themselves has a key role within the business. Uh, you know, if they're a rainmaker, if they bring a lot of money into the business and keeping them out of the business for any period of time might have a disproportionate impact on the revenue of the business. And I think that sometimes is taken into account, but how, you know, how much it's weighed in the balance also needs to be carefully considered as well. And the perception of other people, I think, you know, in, in some workplaces, if someone's been suspended for a period, it's actually pretty difficult for them to have, to come back if, if you know, if the, fine, if the um, allegations are not upheld or they are upheld and a penalty is applied, which is not, which is short of dismissal. It's actually quite hard for people to come back into the workplace in those circumstances because their um, mm. you know, their reputation might be damaged. Yeah, and I think that's where it's very key for employers to think carefully about their communication plan mm. um, and what they say to other employees if they do suspend and to make sure that there is a consistent line so that if that does happen, that they do have to come back, um, it, it's slightly easier to manage. Um, the last point I just wanted to touch on was um, mental health, because this was another point that the manager, David Moyes, made about uh, just acknowledging the toll that it was taking on Kurt Zuma. And I think I, I saw a report as well about one of the matches where the, the opposing side were making cat noises or something. Him. I think West Ham fans booed him as well when they when yeah. he... I think I think it was um, not just opposing fans, but yeah. Yeah, but you could appreciate that even within this context um, and within other sort of contexts where, where employees are accused of misconduct, it's still important for the employer to consider the impact on the individual and consider how they can best support that individual's mental health, really. Absolutely. And I think that often gets forgotten, doesn't it? That you that the employers are um often rightly very concerned about the well-being of someone who's made allegations or who has um you know alleged that they have been subjected to or been witness to some inappropriate behavior but 
the fact of having allegations made against you is also very difficult you know even if even if those allegations are subsequently upheld it's still it's still a difficult process and so employers do need to be thinking about how they support the person against whom allegations are made as well as other people involved in the process yeah and going back to your point Wani, in relation to whether the particular employee may be a key player in the company so for example with the west ham um, high profile player um, situation so if that particular stance wasn't taken because he's a role model essentially and a lot of football fans particularly young um, individuals are looking up to him uh, they would consider that as an acceptable behavior and you know they can start engaging in such um, conduct and um, so even if he was a key player constantly scoring a lot of goals for West Ham if that particular stance was not taken I think um, employers should think about the long-term effect on the company or organization because that is more important as opposed to whether the person is a key individual that's bringing in the most amount of money or clients or um, et cetera, because in the long run, their reputation um, is it's more important. Essentially, they can always kind of recover monetary. Yeah, indeed, I agree with that. Sort of thinking uh, long-term goals instead of short-term goals. Um, and you're right, you know, reputation can have very long-term, uh, a very long-term impact. Thank you, uh, Beth, and thanks, uh, Winnie, as well. Uh, and our next story that we wanted to talk about is about um, banning culturally insensitive barrister wigs. So um, one of Britain's most high profile black QCs has called for the wigs, which are called perukes, to be scrapped from courts um, because they're culturally insensitive. So I think actually they are only still required to be worn within two courts at the moment. But if they are required, barristers um, must wear them. And the problem was is that one of his colleagues has an Afro. Um, he's also a barrister. His name's Michael Etienne. And he was told that he has to wear one or he would face disciplinary action. Now, obviously, with his Afro, it made it quite difficult to do so. Um, but his professional body had said that if he didn't, he could potentially face some repercussions, including contempt of court, wasted costs and various breaches of, of uh, the barrister's code of conduct. And it was said unless it was an instance of discrimination, that was the position that the professional body would take. So we just thought that this was quite an interesting story in relation to um, workplace dress codes um, and whether or not employers generally are allowed to, I don't know, in this situation, obviously barristers, I must say, are self-employed. They're not, they're not employed usually, but whether or not employers more generally are allowed to impose uh, workplace dress codes and if they are um, and those codes could potentially be um, discriminatory. And then just secondly, the implications within the legal sector uh, around wearing these wigs and whether or not it's time for them to go. Um, so Emma, um, I'd be interesting to hear your view about the story. Thank you, Wani. This is a, a, a really interesting story. And um, from my perspective, it brings about discussion about whether this is indirect discrimination in requiring, so it's a neutral requirement, everybody who wants to appear in the particular echelons of the judiciary um, need to wear particular wigs and um, it's applied equally, so irrespective of gender, race, nationality, etc. But um, what's been brought to light by these articles is that 
it can have a disproportionate impact on people who are um, people of colour who may have um, particular hairstyles, which um, then uh, I think the words used in one of the articles was it, uh, well, it, it looks ridiculous um, if you were to put it on top of my hair. And um, in that respect, you then have to say, well, okay, it's a, it's a neutral requirement, um, but what's the, what's the objective, what's trying to be achieved here by our legal system in requiring people to wear these types of wigs? And if we, if we look back at why the wigs are being worn, it's, it's so that the individuals can be distinguished from anybody else in the courtroom as the representatives, the legal representatives. And um, I saw a really good article um, discussing this where somebody was saying, well, look, it's clear that the legal representative is the uh, individual who stood before the judge wearing the black gown and we've got the white tipped collars and um, we've got a pile of papers in front of us. And so there are different ways of distinguishing who the legal representative is uh, in and making them appear very formal mm -hmm. in front of the judge. So if that's the reason, is it, um, is it reasonable, proportionate, is it necessary for the wig to be worn as well, where it can have such a, a negative impact on somebody who's got um, an Afro um, hairdo, which um, is part of uh, an individual's culture, um, and it's having that negative impact. Is there a less discriminatory way of achieving this? Well, that's the lawyer and that's the person who the judge needs to be listening to. And I think probably there is. If, uh, if you go back to the history of why we're, why we're wearing wigs in courts, um, I, I went back and prior to the, I don't know if anybody else saw this, but prior to the 17th century, before Charles II, to, to be a lawyer, uh, and attend the court, you had to have short, clean hair and a beard. <laughs> so there was no requirement. Oh, no. <laughs> we no, would all not, not be able to speak the court. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah exactly. Uh, <laughs> so fortunately, the requirement to have a beard is dropped. <laughs> but the only reason why the wig was brought in, in uh, according to, um, and this was from um, a, a government judiciary website, um, was talking about the fact that in the court of Charles II, in polite society, everybody was wearing wigs and therefore it was polite to wear a wig and that's why they developed this. And mm. I, there's also the element, um, one of you were talking about the fact that um, uh, b before we started recording that uh, you, you had one of these wigs and they're made of horse hair and they cost yeah. thousands of pounds. Mm. So is it not also somewhat elitist to require you know the robe costs enough the white tips collars cost enough why have to then have junior barristers when we're trying to make our profession this less elite um, and increase the access and increasing the access and increase the diversity amongst our profession mm -hmm. I, I feel quite strongly about this and I don't feel that there is um, good reason to maintain the wigs and a lot of courts have dropped the wig wearing as well yeah that's right um you know if we appear in front of the employment tribunal um we can appear as solicitors um uh, but even when we have barristers as well um the barristers don't have to wear their robes or their wigs i i actually find it interesting that within the supreme court highest court in the land no gowns yeah. no wigs nothing and the sky doesn't fall, fall in you know everyone is able to do their jobs and we see absolutely brilliant advocates before the Supreme Court 
Um, so yeah, I think it's quite interesting. Winnie, do you have any any views about this story? Yeah, no, I completely agree. I think um, just the fact that it's no longer a requirement to wear it in family and civil courts, um, you know, since 2007, surely the criminal courts um, should, you know, catch up and um, essentially come in line with the 21st century. And I think it initially actually started, I believe in 1685, to essentially disguise one of the barristers, um, Bolden Sculpt. So it's kind of like, you know, he needed to wear it to cover. Just, just to make the point, another issue that none of us on this podcast have. <laughs> so if that's why it was, you know, first worn and then it became fashion, then surely it should only be an option to, you know, disguise your hair as opposed to um you know having to wear it all the time I just I can't picture having dreadlocks and putting your wig on what what happens when it can't be secured and it accidentally falls during your submission it'll be quite embarrassing to kind of have to reach down and pick it up again and put that back on your head and I think also um Sikh barristers um they've essentially they're allowed to wear um a white turban in um courtrooms instead of a wig so I think perhaps um black barristers could also be afford afforded the same virtue if they're opposed to wearing the wig for cultural reasons and um, you know if they wear dreadlocks or they wear their hair in afro it doesn't um essentially stop them from performing their work in any way shape or form as Emma mentioned and as you also mentioned, one you um, in the Supreme Court, in the family and civil courts, they're brilliant advocates who do their job really well, um, and they're able to be distinguished from other members of the public. Um, so it, it's just not necessary, I don't think. Indeed, I don't know, Beth, if you had a, a comment you wanted to make. I kind of <laughs> no, I'm. Um, I think you know there are people out there who say, oh, but it's part of the kind of um, you know it's part of the sort of trappings of the profession and that they like it as part of you know I put my wig on and then I become what I but but all the arguments that you've all very rightly raised seem to me to undermine that because you know people still manage to go to the Supreme Court and uh and you know without those trappings and do their job very well so I mean it, it seems to me I you know I can see that that there are certain sort of traditions that people like in, in the mm. workplace, but I do also think you need to refresh those traditions and think about why why they're in place and what and what they mean um, and how they might impact on the on the sort of on the diversity, as Emma's rightly said. I think it's a it's problematic, isn't it? Yeah. I think that's a key point about how it impacts on diversity but also I think a key point and it might have come out in this article itself is that if you are trying to bring through a more uh, diverse section of this profession they're going to look up to the people who are already doing this job and if they look up and they think well actually I already wear my hair in dreadlocks so I already wear my hair like this I'm never going to be accepted in this profession mm -hmm. I'm never going to be able to make my way through you know you are already failing at hurdle one because you are not um representing a profession that people feel is open and and something for them um so i think if this is a serious agenda for the bar then it needs to be really seriously reconsidered why we are still doing this yeah. and there have been lots of changes in expectations on dress codes more generally um that you know over the years around you know i think there, there is a kind of movement towards less really really formal wear in all sorts of professions and mm -hmm. um, we were talking a bit about high heels earlier that um you know requiring women to wear high heels just feels massively outdated um 
and uh, you know, I think it, it is all part of a sort of just a move towards just less kind of yeah, less sort of formality and 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 the sort of the the different requirements for different categories of people seems just mm. outdated at this stage. Indeed. Um, um, so our final story um, it's about the metaverse. So you will have heard of Meta, the the new um, name for Facebook. Uh, and they have been developing the metaverse, which is still in its concept stage, but it's a sort of online virtual universe where people could do the things that they do in the ordinary world. So you sort of, you could interact with people, um, you could even have workplace meetings. But what's very interesting is a story that's come out recently about a problem that the metaverse has been facing, which is harassment in the virtual world. And a few um, reporters have had reported some really um, sort of troubling experiences online, including uh, having their avatars being stared at by um, other people silently. And this tends to be, I think this particular one was female, females being stared at by sort of male avatars. Um, and I think the one of the concerns by this particular female was that in virtual reality, when someone stands close to you and speaks close to you, because it's a, it's a sort of all-consuming experience, mm -hmm. it feels very real um, and almost potentially worse than well, I can't say worse, but you know, on, on par with it happening in real in real life. Um, and so as a response to some of these um, disturbing instances happening in this virtual um, reality world, Meta has actually announced a new feature called Personal Boundary, um, which they're going to be rolling out, which is supposed to prevent an avatar from becoming from coming within a set distance with another avatar and just creating personal space for people to avoid unwanted interactions. Uh, so we just want to talk about several um, implications of this. So Emma, I will go to you really quickly first <laughs> as to your views around the story and about what employers, potentially future employers, if we do end up living and working in the, in the metaverse, um, will need to be thinking about. So I did look at this from an employment perspective because the metaverse is perhaps the next way in improving this hybrid working arrangement if it, or if everybody's working from home how people can improve their meeting experience to try and recreate that in-person experience and so the metaverse can give us that because we can feel like we're sitting next to our colleagues as we were before and we can move when we're moving around the room in the same way that we would have done before and you can have those um conversations with the person sitting next to you uh, as you might do in a meeting that you wouldn't necessarily capture um, through a zoom meeting um, and so there are some extremely positive um, aspects of working in the metaverse that um, will change that we will see change the way we work um, they are already but it, you know it's in the next five years it's going it in my view God, I sound like I'm on tomorrow as well but um uh, in terms of how we're going we're gonna to change it so there's some real positives here but as we saw during um the pandemic the increase in harassment even though we weren't all working in the office the increase in sexual harassment that was still being perpetrated mm. um by uh, 
when people are working from home, it was still happening. And there are many credible reports of this. And so employers have to continue to take this seriously and um, uh, be agile in adapting how they police harassment. Um, so from an employment perspective, it's a question of making sure that if we're working in the metaverse, um, that we police and we have the same level of standards that are expected, um, irrespective of how we're working. And I was really shocked to, uh, you forwarded me the BBC article, which explained what was happening in this um, environment where people were sexually harassed. Um, and it, it was it was quite childish in, in the way that it was happening, the way people were being stared at and then people coming into their personal space. Mm. It reminded me of when um, we first started talking about how to monitor what was happening online when people were in chat rooms and people had avatars on games and reminding particularly children about the importance of when you look at somebody who's an avatar, that's not actually necessarily what they look like in real life. And they mm. might not actually be that nice, smiley, shiny person that is before you and it could be something else. So it was, it was just a real stark reminder to me that you have to remember that actually we live in the real world and um, that just because you're working behind this veil um, that is the metaverse, that you have to remember your standards of behaviours that are expected. Indeed. So, Winnie, do you have any points you wanted to make on this story? Yeah. Um, so I think it's really important for um, metaverse companies to essentially build tools that would um, help prevent um, harassment. So there are a few gaming companies that are essentially focusing on establishing uh, community uh, guidelines to keep certain behaviours um, in check. And there's actually one particular um, gaming company that has created a safe zone, which is meant to be a safety feature that it's a protective area which can be activated by an avatar when they're feeling threatened. And then once it's activated, no one can essentially interact with that avatar when they're in that um, safe zone. So I think that's something that um, employers could um, look into adapting. And I guess they could then record um, the amount of employees that actually activate uh, these safe zone uh, tools. And then the data could then be used to update the uh, harassment policies and other um, employment guidelines uh, to figure out how to deal with um, harassment in general. And um, I think it'll, initially it would definitely be collecting data and encouraging um, employees to come forward if they experience any um, unwanted conduct and you know, being really encouraged to actually speak up um, and essentially being observant on activities that are carried out. That's really interesting. And just one point actually to make as well is that I guess when people say harassment automatically, the what might come to mind is physical harassment. Um, but I think we should probably make the point that everything that we've been discussing so far would probably be covered by the current harassment definition of unwanted conduct that, that has a, the purpose or effect of uh, causing you know someone's dignity to be violated and all the various other things um, and it's important for employers to make that clear both now within the context of our just sort of everyday working as people are trying to go back into the office as people are working in a hybrid format and as and when we get into the metaverse that it doesn't stop just you know the protection of the law doesn't stop just because you're behind a screen mm, absolutely i agree um, and I think um, 
as you mentioned, we, we usually think about um, physical harassment essentially, but things like making a joke or commenting on an individual's um, chosen avatar could perhaps relate to your protected characteristics. Um, and that could be something that needs to be considered. Um, or if you know a colleague finds a comment um, offensive or degrading, again, that will also uh, constitute harassment um, essentially, which will need to be looked into. Indeed. Um, and Beth, finally, um, before we wrap up, have you got any final comments about this story? Yeah, I mean, it, no, it's so interesting. And I think there's so, there's so much sort of thinking to be done around sort of how those kind of virtual relationships are managed uh, going forward. I think it's really, really fascinating and really one to watch from an employment law perspective. Indeed. I think just to mention, I'd say that um, in terms of legislation, it would be a bit difficult from um, employment law point of view in um, essentially regulating this area of law because, um, you know, being an um, electronic platform, which enables individuals from all over the world to interact in the same room. An issue may arise where if you're working in a global company and there's an individual in New York, um, Sydney, Tokyo and London, in that situation, what which country's employment law would apply within the metaverse for harassment purposes? Would we then need to consider the guidelines and perhaps um, the employment contract and other policies that the particular company um, have in place to govern how um, any misconduct is um, essentially treated? Or would that be the individual avatars, country's employment law that would need to be um, invoked in such a situation so I think as the metaverse evolves and um, you know progress in the next couple of years um, the way in which these things will be dealt with will um, come into light essentially. Yeah that's absolutely that's fascinating it's really true the sort of issues around jurisdiction and the applicable laws I think yeah we will have to to monitor that and definitely interesting to watch this space. Um, so thank you all once again, thanks to Beth, thanks to Emma, thanks to Winnie for participating in another Law Down podcast and thanks to you for listening. Just before we sign off, if you do want to hear any more of these episodes, you can find them all on our website and much more besides at cm-murray.com. So thank you for listening and goodbye.